Well, Susan, I'm so grateful that you are taking the time with us as we just talked really about this art of storytelling and the fluency with which your childhood was uh, deeply engaged in uh, teaching those who are on the margins, this sense that that gave you a calling. And I wonder if we could just start there. Uh, so much is happening in healthcare in the rapidly changing world, yet we have a deep mission to care for the poor and vulnerable. And you and I have talked about just how do we keep that in front of us? And I wonder if you could help us with maybe even if it's a patient story or something that have impacted you of why have a mission that is focused on the poor and vulnerable for physicians? Yeah, and I think there's just, um, there's so much need everywhere we go, right? Even as the world kind of rapidly changes, you know, the constancy is that need. And the constancy is that um, there are poor and vulnerable communities out there who really need our help. Um, I'll, I'll share a patient's story and maybe kind of draw some links and connections to kind of how I think about um, healing and really um, kind of our, our, our service um, to others. And so when I was um, in Boston at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, I was a first year doctor, a resident physician there. And um, I took some of the sickest, took care of some of the sickest patients there. So because of our affiliations, we would see very, very fragile cancer patients who had undergone bone marrow transplants. And over time, I took care of a young man. He was 17 years old and several times on our bone marrow transplant or BMT unit. And um, patients are very fragile in this unit. And sometimes they wouldn't do well, but he did well. Every time he got discharged home, he stabilized, but then he would come back. And so during internship or residency, you move between different services. So at some point I moved on to the intensive care unit, the um, ICU service. And one night I, you know, they, they kind of page you and they say, there's a new admission coming in. And so you go into the room and I was like, when I met the patient, wow, I know him. And I didn't expect him in the ICU, but I wasn't surprised by it as well. And there's something that happens at least at two or 3 a.m. really in those early hours. Um, and there's a feeling that, that um, I always, you know, you can feel it. And it's that calmness, it's the quietness when it's that hour of the evening. Um, and even when the severity is very high for this patient, there's a calmness in the ICU. Mm. And so we exchanged small talk, a very comfortable, simple conversation, which was also meaningful at the same time. I had some procedures I had to do. I did put in an arterial line in him. And then um, we, we had to sedate him as well. So um, we did that and um, kind of wrapped up and went home for the evening. Mm -hmm. and the next morning I came in and the patient wasn't there anymore. So I thought, mm -hmm. oh, great. You know, he was able to make it back onto the floors. He did well. Mm -hmm. And instead I learned that he had passed. Huh. And really, you know, I was probably the last person that he had talked to and probably the last face that he had seen. And part of me really wished that wasn't the case. 
that last V should have been his mom or family member. Um, but there's some solace that, you know, I saw that he was very calm. He was very much at peace. He wasn't nervous. Um, and hopefully I was a friendly face, mm. a comforting um, presence next to him. So, so I always kind of think back to that sacred encounter. And we talk a lot about sacred encounters in our organization. Um, and even those points in time when we're going about our normal daily work, those simple interactions, sometimes we don't even recognize the impact until later. Maybe it's the next day or the next morning, but sometimes it's weeks or months or even years later, because sometimes they get tucked in so deep that we don't really go back and revisit what their impact is. And what might have seemed as maybe routine work, maybe it actually has very, very great impact to someone else. Um, so that was kind of one takeaway. You know, I kept that really, that experience tucked away for a really long time, never spoke about it for a really long time. I think the other takeaway was just that um, those encounters lead you to really think there's, there's always more that we can do. And the patients who maybe didn't do well, um, their experience, you know, they're giving us something too. They're giving us something to learn from and to work from so that we can make it better for future BMT patients, future bone marrow transplant patients, you know, future communities in need in the future. So I think it's, it's this cycle, right? Where um, we recognize all of these individual interactions, these really gifts and opportunities for us to play a very important role in people's lives. And then to also take that opportunity, not just for that point in time, but then to really expand it to say, well, what are we going to do with this information, knowledge, this experience in the future and have that wider impact? So when I getting back to your poor and vulnerable communities, I think, you know, we've always taken care of poor and vulnerable communities. And I think the heritage of the sisters, that's really what, you know, their service was rooted in. Mm -hmm. But that history builds upon itself. So we take these individual stories, wherever we are in the point in time, and we say, how can we magnify that impact? How can we take those learnings and really build upon them so that it's not just one by one by one, but we're really kind of expanding that influence of all these individual instances? The tenderness of that 17-year-old and your awareness of the room is striking that it's still serving you today uh, the the notion too of how you talked about i knew him that's a fundamental thing that all of us are seeking as we walk into a space where we're extraordinarily vulnerable whether that be in an icu or in a just a, a, a visit of an annual checkup you really uh, seem to have had time to reflect on the importance of that kind of room and the calm of it. And are we losing that? I would say just as human beings um, that we are so on to the next thing that we fail to kind of be mindful of the room. Yeah. How do we bring that back? Yeah. And it's, it's, so interesting that you picked up on that, Martin, because it's something that always, I always remember that, that feeling. Yeah. 
And when you think about the IC, there's always a lot going on. And sometimes you, a patient codes, you have to run out. And I was, you know, I've always felt so grateful that even though it was a short period of time, there was that very calm moment that we shared. And so I think it's about how we break down these really hectic, chaotic moments. And even if they're not long in duration of time, but we create those spaces, those really safe, calm spaces that we are able to be in the moment. And then importantly, not just in the moment, but thereafter being able to reflect back on what has happened in that moment. And we do have to be intentional about creating that time for that reflection and also to be in the moment to appreciate what is going on. So I think that intentionality, Martin, even as you and I think about healing the healer, right? We can be intentional about creating those spaces now for reflection, um, creating those spaces or techniques for people to be able to create those um, moments in time in real time too. I think this is the frontier. And one thing that we've really developed around developing leaders of a 5S plus of the five senses. And then just as we talked about in the last podcast, the plus of intuition and spirituality, bridging all those to create this sense of whole person and my sense of authenticity, that's not easy work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we wanted to draw from you is that sense of how do we develop these leadership skills? And you're talking about reflection and you're also um, available to moments, maybe not to pass them by so quickly, Uh, But I wonder, even as people are listening right now, have they had a quiet moment like that? And maybe it's not necessarily quiet. Maybe it's just in between each patient Mm -hmm. room that they stopped and paused. Uh, But how we generate a reverence for that might be part of the work we have ahead of us. Right, right. And I'm thinking tactically, too, because we are part of a health system. How can we also help make it easier so that those moments of space are there? And Mm. how can we make the work easier, too? so that there's more ability to create that space in someone's very busy clinical day. As you look at the future, uh, because you know I consider you to have the crystal ball uh, with this large role, there's so much of how we could prepare people for what's ahead. Are there things, one, that you say, take the time to develop this skill? We talk a lot with early career caregivers, uh, those who are learning about the importance of mentorship, Um, are there things that you say, boy, this is something that I would spend some time on as I look back in my career. And then as I, I lead, uh, the South division in terms of this chief medical officer role, what is it that we could develop and help people walk uh, with in terms of their own professional and leadership development? I think one of the key aspects and skills is not just listening, but listening to understand really truly how do we not just hear words, but how do we understand other people's stories, whether that's our patient's stories or a fellow physician's story or a, or a caregiver's story? Um, I think building that skill, which can take time, and, um, and developing that skill and that muscle, not just for certain audiences, but really broad swath people and being intentional about listening to stories that we might not normally be exposed to, too. Because I think in that inclusivity, 
that's part of the learning. And um, just that overall openness, I believe, allows us to continually refine our perspective. And it's only by being intentional. What I want to draw out, too, in terms of this, uh, you called it a listening understanding, I believe. Listening to understand. Okay. What I wanted to call out is this listening to understand. And there are ways that in our own lives, even in families, that we need to take the time to listen to understand. Uh, you, you and I both share in uh, raising some younger uh, children and at times how in a profession or in an organization, people are attentive to not just the organizational skill you develop, but the, the life and the family skill. I can remember our time in growing up in Boston as well. And you drew on that story uh, from being at Harvard and at the Brigham. And uh, at some point, my mom just said, enough, I am not going to wait for you while you round on the patients. I'm going to get a pass to the Children's Museum. What happened in that moment was there was a lot of listening from uh, a dad who wanted to care for his patients that also we needed to go and, and move and find our own ways of, of taking some development uh, as kids. But there was a real sacredness to that moment. And I imagine that you have had that over your life of just the overall balance. How do you balance two worlds, the world of family and the world of Providence St. Joseph Health? And if there's any uh, notion about how to create that balance of tenderness, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure I have all the answers. Um, I feel like there are these common threads into how I approach my work and why I show up to work and um, why I show up for my family as well. And it's really comes from that just caring, right? And, you know, the same way that um, I show up to work and I, I want to care for our patients and our communities and really um, just broaden, you know, the good that we can deliver. It's, you know, for my family, it's a little bit more local, right? It's um, how can I show up for my kids and help them develop and help them grow and help them cultivate, you know, their passions and interests. And it's interesting that you mentioned the skills that we had talked about earlier. You know, those same skills, I, I really feel like they are apropos for both settings. So, you know, the skills of listening to understand to your spouse and my husband or to my kids. And even though they are, they are young, you know, there's an art to really listening and communicating with kids as well and really tapping into who they are. And so those skills I really see are quite interchangeable between both settings. And I think that approach to, um, you know, helping others, you know, we help our family members and our family members help us too. And then same thing at work, we help our colleagues and our colleagues help us help us back too. So I, I see more consistency more than anything between the two. Um, and it also helps to just simply have a family and a, a spouse and a husband who is incredibly supportive of what I do and completely gets it. And, and also, understands why I do what I do and why I feel so passionate about my work. 
I, I, I hear a lot of resonance. And just as you started on our journey today of the art of storytelling and that fluency, right? And how we learn language, there seems to be a language that uh, you have developed in order to balance those two worlds. And I, I appreciate that you shared that with us today. Anything else as we go? I always uh, am conscious of your questions or the things that have been in your mind. Uh, we have a little bit more time. Is there anything else that, that you have uh, that might be uh, a notion of this listening to understand or anything, Dr. Huang? Um, see, I, I think maybe not on the listening to, to understand, but maybe on the notion of kind of our stories and really just the richness of our heritage stories uh, here at Providence and with the sisters, the sisters of Providence, the sisters of St. Joseph, really how they were able to weave their stories and really continue that legacy and the great work that they've done. And um, I think really for all of us to kind of tap into that those heritage stories to really understand where do we where do we sit in this whole continuum of history too, and I think about um, you know the stories of how our sisters went on begging tours to raise money, or how they taught women who were on the fringes to make lace to prevent them from really falling into really severe and dire situations. And, you know, I think about modern day and in modern day Silicon Valley, where I used to live, you know, that was, that would be called maybe social entrepreneurship, right? So, and fundraising from your VCs and private equity. And, and here they were, right? In California and probably the same footprint of Silicon Valley doing all of these things. I think about the stories of immigration as well. You know, my parents were immigrants to America and, um, in the earlier 1900s, when immigrants came to America, a lot of them did not have access to education or to health care. And this was prominent during the times of the gold rush and also as the railroads were being constructed in California. And so a lot of the hospitals in San Francisco would actually turn away Chinese immigrants. And this was codified in law as well. But who they weren't turned away from were the sisters. So I think it's really important for us as we have so many different discussions in our world today about um, different populations, different races and ethnicities, as we think about health equity and then our notion and our value of justice, that we realize that these themes are not new, but that they are really interwoven into our histories and into our stories of, of who our organization is. Thank you. Thank you for helping us with the language, uh, especially around, it sounds, the word in our mission statement of steadfast. Mm -hmm. And no matter whether you are in a migrant situation or whether you are in that ICU with that 17-year-old, uh, there's a steadfastness with which you have offered to us today. And I, I'm so grateful to you for doing that, Dr. Huang. Thank you so much, Martin. I really appreciate the time. And I, I do have uh, one question for you, Martin, as well. Um, as we kind of think about healing the healer and from your vantage point, we just love to hear how you see um, really the bigger picture of what needs to be done and really how our stories weave into that. 
this is a wonderful way for us to become people of self-discovery. And just as you and I have spent these two episodes kind of uh, going back and discovering what were the moments of uh, listening to understand, our ability to create a culture of heal the healer means that we want to listen to your own story and not to go too quick with it. Uh, we are in a very efficient and need to be health system. Uh, we are high on quality and high on safety. Stories take time and healing takes time. Some might not be ready to go back. You talked about, which I thought was very powerful of uh, not really digging into that story for a while. My work with the prisoners at San Quentin over three years was very similar that they, some of them wouldn't even say the name of the person that they had killed for up to 20 years. And in order for them to be healed, they needed to acknowledge what it was that was a part of their story. And then they were free. And they might, many of them are still there on life term in the prison, but it's a lot different if you are a person who is hurt because hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. Healed people heal people. And what we're generating in this culture and what we're launching is a sense that we want to heal people. And we want to be acknowledging that some of our own hurts are still hurting people. And how can we heal those? That's a lot of what transformation in healthcare and makes us distinctive, I think, in provenance is, is exciting to do. But it takes time. I had one friend and she said to me, you know, I'm not sure I believe the line of time heals all wounds because I'm still dealing with some stuff. But I thought her vulnerability and her truth set me on a trajectory to say, I'm willing to walk with you. I'm willing to take the time and, and having a partner like you and others who are creating that space of safety to let people tell the truth is going to be make us better healers. Thank you so much, Martin. And I am just incredibly grateful that I have a partner in you to really address this because unless we, unless we acknowledge it, unless we start putting words, unless we start creating the spaces for these discussions, um, that, that healing won't occur. And we really, you know, we're witnessing the ramifications of that. So, um, building that culture, building those muscles that, that really does take time. I want to thank Dr. Susan Huang for joining us and to everyone for listening. Her stories of personal meaning and the way she took care of patients in the ICU will forever be remembered as a moment of presence. You can find the Providence Mission Leadership Institute on LinkedIn. Be well. <laughs>